following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I'm really excited uh, to get us started with this new series today. It's called The Church in the World. And I hope that it will be a reminder for all of us to be thinking every single day about the fact that God is active and present, not just in our little part of the world, but in every part of the world, in every place and culture. Because it is quite easy to become preoccupied with our own way of seeing God or thinking about God or talking about God or singing to God or even understanding God. And yet, um, the more we open ourselves to the experiences of other people who have had different experiences from our own, uh, I think the more we, we, we are able to start to get closer to God and understand God uh, in new ways. So in these next few weeks, we're going to be hearing reports from people who either live or serve or have lived and served in places around the world, um, sharing, among other things, how that has changed their understanding of faith and bringing us words from those places, including uh, Uganda and Finland. I mentioned Vila a few minutes ago, um, China. And today, we are blessed to welcome back to uh, Artisans, some old-time Artisans, um, some folks who you, if you are newer to the community, might never have seen before this week, or they were here with us last week. You might have met them last week. You might have said, hey, are you new here? I'd like to meet you. And no, they're not new here. Um, they've just been away. Is it eight years now? Ten, oh, my goodness. I definitely under, yes, over a decade. Um, and uh, they're going to share the work that they've been doing, and I'm not going to waste any of their time that they have been allotted saying anything about it except to say that it has been an honor to support them in their work over these past 10, 12 years, um, however many years it's been. They'll figure out the math before they get up here, I'm sure. Um, and to let them know and let you know that they have never stopped being part of our community. They have been artisans all along. They've never been too far from our minds and hearts we're grateful for the work that God has done with them and in them and through them. So please join me in welcoming back to Artisan, showing some Artisan love for Carolyn first and then Ryan Kledgeman-Lavin. Well, good morning, church. It yeah, it's so good to be here, to see your faces. And there's a lot of new faces, but there is still this sort of artisan feeling. Um, so it's been a really long time since we've been up here. In fact, when we were talking to Scott, we lost count. When was the last time we were standing up here? But um, a lot has changed, but still what hasn't changed is that artisan has faithfully supported us over these years in so many different ways. And we're really grateful for that. So that's one of the reasons that it feels like such a privilege to be up here uh, to just share with you um, and also share some of the gratitude we feel. So, um, this morning I'm going to share a little bit about what God's been teaching us along the way, and Ryan's going to share a little bit about the ministry that we do in South Korea. Uh, we joined Artisan in 2009, and we were sent out as missionaries to Indonesia in 2011. Uh, our season of serving in Indonesia, it was marked with... Uh, it was bittersweet. It was marked with a lot of challenges. There would be those expected challenges, maybe cultural climate that comes from living in a jungle, right? Um, but there were more unexpected ones, like mental health issues, broken team relationships. 
we felt a lot of shame around some of the mental health issues and some of the struggles we had. Those were not things that you usually talk about in uh, the good, successful Christian missionary life. Uh, but we came to find out that those unexpected challenges were all too common for missionaries, cross-cultural workers, those serving overseas. And from that came the vision for the work that we do today, which is Footstool Mission Center. Ryan's going to share a little more about the background, the founding of Footstool. But just so you have a little context, Footstool is a nonprofit organization. It supports those doing cross-cultural work in the 1040 window of Asia, uh, and that's through counseling, networking, uh, fiscal sponsorship, uh, just other support services as a way to support those who are really under-supported working in Asia. So my uh, day-to-day job is working as the on-staff counselor at Footstool, and I also lead a counseling ministry at an international church in Seoul called uh, Jubilee Church. Uh, Ryan serves as the director of Footstool, and we are sort of also perpetually tagging off who's in grad school. It's my turn again. Um, And we also have two semi-feral boys named Noah and Finn. And so with that, we have some pretty full lives. So, yeah, we have these full lives. We have our nonprofit, we have church work, grad school, our kids, all the extras that come with being an expat living overseas. Um, There isn't a lot of margin, right, which we both love, the fullness of our lives and can add a lot of stress. So when your life is so full, just one little extra can sort of tip the balance into a great deal of stress, right? I know you all come here today carrying your own stories, right, of feeling like that balance has been tipped. In fact, saying, adding a stress, tipping the balance seems like an understatement in these pandemical times. But I think that we can all relate to when there's just extra on top of everything else. It feels like too much. And, you know, when you're running hard without a lot of margin and life's challenges and pain come up, It seems like discouragement can set in pretty quickly. Um, That's when we start asking some of those questions, like, why? Or, God, where are you? What are you doing? And it seems like at any point in our lives when we're faced with life's challenges and pain, we find that that can be the tipping point that sends us into discouragement. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about encouragement, and that's going to actually tie into talking about what fuels a lot of the work we do in Korea. Um, But for beginning here, as a word for the church, I I sort of want to pose this question that how do we as the body of Christ encourage one another in a way that is truly loving and reflects Christ to one another? So um, as we begin, I want to highlight, I want to read today's scripture uh, from John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So just kind of bookmark this first. I'm going to come back to it. Um, and, and I kind of want to tie it all together. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a book club, and we were reading a book called Everything Happens for a Reason. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, the story, it's a memoir, and it is about Duke professor Kate Bowler, and she talks about being di- diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer at 35 years old. In the book, she recounts sort of how others reacted to her illness. 
So giving her various research done on juices and supplements that could cure it all. Maybe sharing about their own problems, comments like, everything happens for a reason, or, well, at least, or, it's going to get better, I promise, and on and on. There was a lot of advice, a lot of cliches, a lot of explanation as to why she had cancer, perhaps from her sin issues to her aversion to green vegetables. Most of it was well-intentioned, but a lot of it was really painful, She writes that events like her cancer can tend to bring up three questions that are so simple but so deep. Why? God, are you here? What does suffering mean? But this is what she writes. At first, those questions had enormous weight and urgency. I could hear him. I could almost make out an answer, but it was drowned out by what I've heard a thousand times. Everything happens for a reason. God is writing a better story. Apparently, God is also busy going around closing doors and opening windows. He just can't get enough of that. Do you hear what happened there? She felt that other people's encouragement, it actually drowned out God's still small voice in her pain. That others' encouragement ended up being discouraging. And that brings up the question, how can we encourage others well? What do we do when someone is discouraged so that we actually breathe courage into them, not deepen their discouragement? You know, the definition of discouraged is to be deprived of courage, hope, or confidence. So a discouraged person has lost their courage. Maybe they've lost their courage to try again, or to love, or to get out of bed, or even to keep on living. There's a large spectrum of discouragement. And I'm sure that every person in this room can relate to feelings somewhere on that spectrum, maybe even today. When discouragement gets talked around Christian circles, it often goes right to calls to count it all joy, or even that maybe being discouraged is a sin. However, there are so many instances of discouragement in the Bible. Job's a famous one, right? He's like, why was I even born? David many times expresses great discouragement. And Leah, the unwanted wife of Jacob, talks about her misery. Hannah was so discouraged she couldn't even eat. And Paul talks about coming in weakness with fear and great trembling to the church of Corinth, which doesn't sound super encouraged. Peter is discouraged after denying Jesus, and on and on and on. The Bible is actually full of stories of real people facing real heartbreaking discouragement. Because discouragement is a, na- it's a normal human experience. However, even though this is a pretty much guaranteed experience in our lives, for people everywhere, we kind of don't know how to handle it in other people very well often. We give advice, tidy answers, maybe a Bible verse to help people look on the bright side, or keep on keeping on, have more courage. But how can you have courage? How can someone have courage when it's gone? They're deprived of courage. It isn't there. And I think, in fact, while a lot of these explanations, advice, Bible verses on counting it joy, though some of those things, they're really well-intentioned. Timing is everything, right? Context matters. Patience matters. And when someone is feeling deprived of hope and we say, come on, just have hope, that can feel more hopeless. How can I have hope and trust in God when I can't, I can't even access that? It's not even available to me. So 
what is to encourage? How can we encourage? Well, the definition of encourage is to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. So that's not tidy answers or inspirational words, but to breathe courage where it is not, to breathe courage where there is fear. So I wonder, what does encouragement look like in your life? What does it look like when you've been given encouragement? What does it look like when you've given encouragement to others? Did you feel like courage was breathed into a fearful place, or did it feel like a tidy answer or cliche? You know, I think a lot of these advice, explanations, cliches, they're well-intentioned, right? But if you look beneath them, I think they're fueled by a lot of fear. Because an explanation or a cliche, it feels safe and kind of controlled, right? If I can explain why something bad happened to somebody, then maybe I can know what I need to do so it doesn't happen to me. And I think that even if we don't profess to believe this, right, maybe subconsciously there can be a belief like if I just do the right things or follow the rules or I'm faithful or moral or something, then maybe I can keep bad things from happening. How scary to admit that the world doesn't work like that, right? That we don't always understand why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? So that's one way. Or what about avoiding pain, right? Somebody is in a time of pain and changing the subject or avoiding that person or trying to cheer them up. Another thing, coming up with the right answer, trying to fix it, doing your best to solve the problem. You know, all of those things can also be motivated by fear, fear of being overwhelmed by another person's pain. So we can be uncomfortable with our pain and pain in other people. And, you know, having a pet answer can sometimes feel a lot easier than sitting with someone in their pain and being with them when you just don't know what to say. So I think it can be a good question when somebody else is with you in pain of doing a quick inner inventory. Is something in this person's situation triggering any fears in me? And then naming that fear, because naming can be a pretty powerful thing, right? When we have unnamed narratives inside us, they can tend to drive us without us realizing what's happening. And then we lead our lives from fear and not by our Holy Spirit-led selves. So I say name that fear and give it to God before you do or say anything else. We can ask God to help us name our fears and to give us that perfect love. Your own courage to face your fears could actually help breathe courage into another. So as I mentioned earlier, I am a counselor. Uh, a lot of people that get into counseling, they maybe are a little more empathetic, fuzzy, kind. That's not me as much. I'm more of a fixer. That's kind of what drove me there. Uh, I like to fix problems, whether that's organizing my son's Legos or helping somebody overcome anxiety. I'm down to fix anything. I'm also an oldest child. You probably already figured that out. But I have this sort of irresistible urge to come in and fix something that isn't working. But actually, that's not how counseling works. <laughs> You're not supposed to talk much at all. The job is to ask good questions, to prompt people to put things together, to solve their own problems, to see the story they're telling themselves. Not an advice giver, not somebody that talks, but kind of a story co-editor, right? To see how your story may be limiting what is trapping you and then trapping you from getting into the greater story, right? So let me tell you, those early days when I was doing my internship in practicum were such a struggle because I, I just, oh, I had things to say. <laughs> uh, one of my supervisors once said, 
Oh, I had a session that was 30 minutes of just total silence. And I was like, I would die. I can't do that. You know, we want to help. But the truth is, if we're talking a lot, we can't be listening, right? And I can't rewrite someone's story for them. I need to be patient and hold space to sit with someone and let them grieve sometimes. And this lesson isn't just for me, it's for all of us to be okay with letting people be not okay sometimes, right? And you know, often there's a great worry when talking to someone in pain that you won't know what to say. But the truth is when many of us are discouraged, we're just looking for permission to admit what we're going through is hard. And you know, there's this weird kind of comparison that can come with challenges and suffering. So for some reason, when someone is in pain, we often make this sort of hierarchy of suffering. I think this is where some of those at least comments can come in. Well, at least it's not cancer, or at least you still have your job, or at least you could try for another baby. The comments just skip right over the pain the person is in and are ready to look on the bright side. And we do the same thing to ourselves, right? We can criticize ourselves for our discouragement and think, who am I to feel discouraged? There's so many people out there who have it worse or harder than me. Well, that might be true. There's usually people who have it easier and harder than us, right? But it does no good to condemn ourselves, or to critique ourselves for not being stronger. Like, what does it, good does it do to put it on that sort of hierarchy? It certainly doesn't sound like a helpful tactic for pulling ourselves out of discouragement, and it doesn't sound like how God would speak to us in our time of pain. So what ends up being more helpful? Saying an at least or a, I'm so sorry, this is hard. So this brings me to what I'm going to call the incarnational principle. This is actually not my personal, uh, this is not my personal original thought. It is uh, from Pastor Greg Boyd. But the idea is God saved the world by incarnating himself. He became present amongst us in the pain of life. He took the worst we had to offer, and his loving sacrifice is what frees us from sin and death. And what we are called to do for others is a parallel of this being present, fully present in the pain of life with another and loving that person, that is what does the healing. Because the greatest gift you have to give another person is actually yourself. Uh, in counseling, we have a whole bunch of theories of why we can explain why somebody's not doing well and how they can get better uh, throughout the ages, right? Psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioral therapy, on and on. And there can be um, debate as to what is the most effective. Well, one thing that is clear is what is key is the relationship between a client and their counselor. If the relationship is trusting with good communication, shared goals, two people working in partnership, that is what is proven to be essential for the success of client outcomes because relationships heal. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there need to be boundaries to these healing and helping relationships, right? Okay, we want to name our fears, submit them to Jesus, lovingly be the gift of joining others in their pain, and yet there are also limits. It should not be all on us to encourage another person if you feel like they're a danger to themselves or being swallowed alive by their problems. This is not what I'm talking about. That's when they need greater support, and it should not all be on you. So I had to say that. Needing good support and setting healthy boundaries, that is its own thing.
But here, I'm saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the same glory that was dwelling in the temple, that is inside you. In Romans 8 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so this is the incarnational principle that you are the gift. The greatest help you can be to a person in Christ is to just be there. And your presence joining them in their pain can truly breathe courage into their lives. And God calls us to expect him to show up. Because God is always at work. Expect God to show up when you don't know what to say, when you don't have all the answers, when it feels uncomfortable to be with someone in their pain. And expect that God is at work and that is enough. Expect that God will be with you and actually wants, wants to use you to encourage other people. I mean, there is just so much pain in the world right now. It is palpable. It is almost too much to get up every day with how much the earth is just crying out around us, right? And, and it's not just the news. It's, it's in our lives. It's in our families, our communities. And it just can feel like too much, So then how can we have the courage to come alongside others? And I go back to our scripture passage. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because the root word for courage is the Latin word for heart. And some translations even read, take courage, I have overcome the world. And this truth that Jesus has ultimately overcome all pain, all sin, all hurt, can give us some courage to face our own fears and to enter in another's hurts. And I think this is the intent of this charge, not to cheer us up or not to tell us to cheer somebody up when their heart is broken, but to deeply know we can have courage to face the pain in this world, in ourselves and in others. So in closing of what I have to say, I pray that you artisan church of whom I am part, even though from far away, would continue, and I know this is where your heart is too, you would continue to be a community that breathes courage into each other and into this greater community, that you would first be inspired with love for each other and then speak truth into those areas where there is fear, to breathe courage into those scary places, but coming from love, not from a desire to fix or to make people stop talking, but truly it comes from love, a love that enters the pain and doesn't provide simple answers to complicated problems, and a love that speaks truth into fear. And now I'm going to sort of hand off the baton to my spouse. He's going to talk more about the work that we do with Footstool Uh, Carolyn said she likes to fix things, and I'm, um, I'm the number one project there. Um, I, uh, come, we're coming to you guys from Asia, and uh, it's great to be here. I, I thought this last week when we were here, and um, Pastor Scott was um, talking about Thomas, the apostle, 
And it just struck me, it's kind of a cool connection that the tradition holds that Thomas, after be going through that, that uh, encounter with Jesus and then the Pentecost and, and the post-apostolic uh, time in Jerusalem, he actually went to India, all the way into Asia, and planted churches. And there are still churches to this day that hold themselves as planted by the Apostle Thomas. They, they, they hold to an apostolic um, uh, descent from Thomas. So I just thought it was kind of cool that we're coming up from Asia. Um, but a lot's happened since we were last here at Artisan. Um, the church has grown and changed with, with the congregation, but then physically we weren't here when this was all like this. Um, with the pandemic had not happened last time we were here, words like social distancing or COVID, N95, no one knew what an N95 was, right? It was all, it was all new. Um, I also had ankle surgery since we last spoke, and it was my first time having surgery, so I was pretty freaked out, and because um, I was afraid of the process, afraid of the pain, and so I spent a lot of time uh, YouTubing videos of this surgery happening, like, like it would somehow help my fear. And uh, I was trying to use more knowledge to alleviate my anxiety. And sometimes I found out as of what I was watching was actually a surgery done on a cadaver, for an example. And so it was, uh, yeah, it, it was an unsuccessful attempt to alleviate my anxiety. But I, um, during this time, I picked up a book that I had for a long time. And something about it hit my heart right away. I was reading, um, and maybe many, many of you know this book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, he writes that he has nothing to offer his readers except, quote, my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than knowledge, a little human sympathy more than courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. And this strikes me as true because my increase in knowledge didn't help with my experience of pain at all. What I needed was to be connected with God's love and to experience sympathy, which I did from plenty of kind nurses, and to have some courage, and to have friends and family have the courage to not just gloss it over, but to acknowledge the pain. And what I needed, simply besides God, were people. I needed people to minister to me. Today, I'm going to be sharing about Footstool Mission Center and how you as a church support our work to minister to missionaries serving in the 1040 window. Most of these people are experiencing pain of a variety of sorts. Some are experiencing hardships and persecutions. Um, a great deal of these missionaries are under-resourced and need to be ministered to. And that's where we come in as Footstool. We offer a variety of avenues of support, but the heart of what we do is to come alongside and care for those missionaries serving in the 1040 window. Our mission statement as an organization is uh, missions through unity. And as a hashtag, it looks like missions through Hunnity because, you know, one thing, the H and through unity looks like Hunnity. It's very confusing. Um, but in John 17, uh, Jesus is praying and he equates the unity of the believers globally with the world coming to know him. So as an, as an organization, we seek to do everything out of unity. And our vision then is to be a base camp for missions to the 1040 window. Um, 
on Mount Everest, you know, the tallest mountain on the earth, uh, there's a base camp at 17,000 feet. And that's where climbers go and they rest, they get acclimated, they get supplied, they prepare to summit Everest. And they're there for a long time. And just as a base camp is needed to summit Everest, we want to be a base camp to support missionaries who are working in this 1040 window. So the 1040 window, for those of you who don't know, it's the 10th degree latitude, wait, sorry. Yeah, 10th degree latitude, 40 degree latitude between Africa and then the end of Asia. So if you imagine a map going across, it's most of North Africa, Middle East, and then pretty much all of Asia. And um, the reason that we focus on this window of area is because of the need. Two-thirds of the world population lives in this window, including 95% of the people in the world who, who literally don't, have never heard the name of Jesus or don't know anything about the gospel. And only 3 to 4% of missionaries serve in this window. Uh, and only $0.05 cents of every $100 spent on missions work goes to work in this window. So the, the need is great, and the resources are very small. And in addition to these statistics, the missionaries serving in these, this, this window have a higher rate of leaving the field than other missionaries due to a number of reasons. Uh, counseling, marriage problems, health problems, financial shortfall. So the need is very clear. So as an organization, we have four main areas where we try to address this need. Uh, fiscal sponsorship, networking, training, and member care. Fiscal sponsorship is our way of addressing the financial need. We have a legal non and this, this is not what we set out to do, and it kind of developed into one of our biggest things. Um, we have a legal nonprofit here in the U.S., and we have a legal nonprofit in Korea. So we're able to collect donations from churches and ministries in the U.S. and then distribute them throughout Asia legally, and so people can get a tax receipt here and the money can go to where it's supposed to go. And uh, last year, through fiscal sponsorship, we were able to bring in over a million dollars and uh, distribute it to over 30 different organizations uh, working in the 1040 window. This is a very broad group of organizations in a lot of countries. I think we're in nine countries that we're supporting. Uh, we support, um, which this means you guys support through us as well, there's an orphanage in Thailand we support. Um, there's an HIV AIDS center in India uh, for children that we support. Uh, we support people working. I'm going to say this carefully because I'm online. Um, if you imagine where we are in the world, uh, where we live, just north of us in that area, we support people who are working there. Um, we have ministry, we are in partnership and support ministries to end sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. Um, we, there, we have one great partner who's working in uh, Myanmar right now. And if you know, Myanmar has been under, uh, it's been under a crazy coup and there's been a lot of violence. And um, we're able to supply his church and his school with, with rice and food um, through the support that comes in um, through, through Footstool. So those are just a few. That we, that we end up supporting. Um, our networking work is we, we connect churches and missionaries and organizations together through networking events uh, that we host or help sponsor because 
as we believe unity is key, to have unity, you got to network. So we try to do intentional networking events to bring different groups working on similar sectors together. Uh, we also do training. Um, that was on hold for most of COVID uh, because of, you know, you couldn't do things like this. But we have in-house trainings uh, that we do for short-term teams going out. We did our first one uh, like right before we came back to the States since COVID, which was great. Uh, we trained up a couple teams that were going to work in uh, very impoverished areas in Seoul to go try to help fix up people's houses that were run down. Um, and then we have long-term trainings, and we also host third-party trainings on uh, church planning or, or other missions activities. And then the fourth thing that we do is called member care. Um, that's our way to support those currently serving. Um, we do that through offering counseling services via Carolyn. And uh, we also host a free uh, annual member care retreat for missionaries. So this is, uh, this is a one, we try to make it a one-stop shop. Anybody in Asia, it's free for them. They get to the airport in Seoul, we pick them up, we take them to a retreat center. We have a main speaker, we actually take them to get full health screenings done, and we, through that we've actually caught some serious illnesses that were misdiagnosed in their countries. Um, we have massage therapy, we do manicures, we haircuts. Um, in some countries, there are, there are prescribed haircuts. You can only select out of like 15 haircuts. And so people don't like that. And so when they come in, we bring in, we bring in actual hairstylists, so they get whatever haircut they want. Um, we have a children's ministry that we run. We do art therapy. We, we try to just do the whole shebang for this group um, that, uh, to really support and care for those people. And uh, the serving in hard places, um, as I mentioned, just north of us, throughout India, Southeast Asia, um, the, some of the some of the people that we support, they regularly see their community members um, pass away from from um, HIV/AIDS, and it's it's hard, and they don't feel supported, and uh, we're often told. Um, that we are their only support network because we're, we're working with people who are not sent out by big uh, organizations, missions organizations. Um, they're people who are out there working and they're usually sent out by churches like, like us, like Artisan, and they don't have a support network and that's where we try to step in. Um, and they're living and working in these difficult situations but they, they feel like they're following God's call in their lives. And... Uh, that can be confusing because when you follow God's call, there can be this assumption that, oh, life becomes easy. Um, and we have this, I think Carolyn said something like this too, like we have this idea, if we make the right choice, everything will just fall into place. But we're not promised that. Uh, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus straight up says, things are going to be hard. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. In his first epistle, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians throughout the Roman Empire who were in the midst of suffering persecution. And they were probably thinking, why, if following Jesus is the right thing, am I suffering this way? But Peter addressed that in, in chapter 4, verse 12. He said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, there's nothing strange about experiencing hardship and sufferings. Peter then goes on to say in verse 19, So, then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So in the midst of suffering and hardship, God remains faithful. And we should continue to answer our calling to bring heaven to earth. Because God is always at work bringing resurrection where there's death. So for us at Footstool, our part in the work of bringing heaven to earth is to continue to support those serving in the 1040 window. And we want to thank you, Artisan, uh, for your continued prayers and support. Uh, you have been walking with us for 11 years, and um, we, we, couldn't, we literally couldn't do this without you. So we want to thank you uh, for your support for, for our organization, for Footstool, but also for our family. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn and Ryan, for that wonderful word um, of encouragement and for sharing with us all that you have been up to, and we are so grateful for your work. Um, I'll just say that uh, they alluded to it a couple of times, but Artisan contributes to their work uh, financially on a monthly basis uh, based on the giving that you do. And so when you give to Artisan Church, some of that money goes to Carolyn and Ryan and to Footstool and to supporting uh, all of their efforts. And uh, we have not really been a basket-passing church uh, post-pandemic, so I'll just let you know that if you would like to give to Artisan directly and thereby give indirectly to Karen and Ryan, you can do that at the um, box at the back of the room or online at artisanchurch.com giving. And that sustains not only us, but many of the ministries that we support. Uh, I would encourage you to be generous in and sacrificial with your financial lives in lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be giving to this particular church. In fact, if you are feeling your heart stirred by the work that they're doing, I'm sure that they would be willing to give you a minute or two of their time after the service to tell them, or to, so they can tell you how to send uh, financial or other support to them directly. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.